Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my content at legendaryupside.com. This episode of the podcast is going to be a free preview of the narration of the week five walkthrough. The walkthrough is my game by game preview column. It's the big perk of being signed up for Legendary Upside in season. And uh, I go really in depth on all of these teams as you're about to hear. If you want to read this entire article or listen to the entire thing on a premium podcast feed, head over to Legendary Upside and sign up for a premium subscription. I do still have some $50 underdog credits. If you want to head to legendaryupside.com slash leg up dash perks, you can check out more about uh, how to get that $50 underdog credit. But let's go ahead and get to the free preview of the week five walkthrough. The title of the article is Week 5 Walkthrough, Devon Achan, The Myth, The Man. Welcome to the Week 5 Walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this fifth glorious week of football. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastStar, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. The first game is Jaguars at Bills, which is the London game at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. Jaguars implied team total, 21.5. Trevor Lawrence is trending in the right direction. In week one, he posted an 11th percentile EPA per play. He was in just the 12th percentile in week two. It was a rough start to the season. But Lawrence's efficiency improved substantially over the last two weeks. Then I have a chart here showing Trevor Lawrence's percentiles by week. He was actually pretty solid in success rate in week one, but very inefficient. The success rate dropped, though, in a big way in week two, and he was also super inefficient that week as well. But then he's improved in the two weeks since. Lawrence still ranks just quarterback 26 in EPA per game, but his consistency has been very solid. He ranks quarterback 9 in success rate. That season-long consistency indicates that his improved efficiency over the last two weeks is likely to be a genuine step forward. Then I have Lawrence's EPA per game chart uh, showing him down in a a range of the chart that almost no one else is in. Uh, It's him and and Deshaun Watson. These are guys that have been pretty good in success rate, but very inefficient in EPA per game. So he looks like a very strong positive regression candidate if he keeps playing this consistently. Doug Peterson also seems to believe that Lawrence's improved play is for real. The Jaguars return to a pass-first approach against the Falcons producing a 6% pass rate over expected. In week three, they rolled out a conservative game plan against the Texans with a minus 3% PROE and a minus 16% PROE on first down. So it was heartening to see them return to an aggressive style in a game environment where they could have justified pounding the rock. I was a bit nervous about Jacksonville's play calling philosophy entering week four, but they look like a solidly pass first team. Then I have a chart showing Jacksonville's expected pass rate in each week and their actual pass rate in each week. And you can see that in week one, they passed a little less than expected. In week two, they passed quite a bit more than expected. Then in week three against the Texans, which was a loss, they passed less than expected, which I found concerning. But last week, even though they had positive game script with just a 52% expected pass rate, they were pass first with a 59% actual pass rate. But the Jaguars are unlikely to be truly aggressive against a very strong Bills defense that ranks third in EPA allowed per dropback and third in coverage grade. The Bills could let up some big plays, though. Only the Broncos are allowing a higher rate of 15-plus yard passes, and the Bills just lost cornerback Tredavious White to a torn Achilles. 
White ranks quarterback 20 in PFF's coverage grades and represents a significant loss for the Bills' defense. But it's likely to be an up-and-down game for Lawrence. Although the Bills haven't gotten to the passer all that well, they rank third in pass rush win rate and should have success against the Jaguars' offensive line that ranks just 29th. Then I have the matchup chart here. It's an interesting matchup because the Bills look like a very good defense overall, um, but they haven't been getting to the passer as much as you would expect, just 30th in quick pressure rate. Um, but that looks like uh, a weakness that will kind of resolve over time. They basically have some positive regression coming in terms of their pass rush based on the player tracking data uh, using ESPN's uh, pass rush win rate. They've also been a very good defense, but they are letting up explosive plays. Jaguars look fairly middling across the board. It's been a strange start to the season for the Jaguars wide receivers. After a bullish week one, Calvin Ridley quieted down in weeks two through three, despite seeing seven first-read targets against both the Chiefs and Texans. He then fell to just two first-read targets against the Falcons. Then I have uh, Calvin Ridley's target type by week. Uh, He's seen, interestingly, all of his targets since week one have been first-read targets, but uh, he saw 11 targets in week one, uh, two non-first-read and nine first-read then seven, seven, and just two last week. Christian Kirk has seen the opposite trajectory. He saw just two targets in week one, but has been heavily targeted over the last three weeks. Then I have the same chart for Christian Kirk. He's seen two first three targets in week one, then nine, then five, then eight, but he's also seen uh, quite a few non-first three targets, seeing five in week two, one in week three, and then three last week. So he was at 11 targets last week, eight of them being first read. When comparing the two on a per route basis, Kirk's usage is arguably stronger. Then I've got a chart here comparing Calvin Ridley and Christian Kirk, highlighting first read targets per route. Ridley only leads 18% to 17%. Targets per route run, Ridley actually trails 18% to 23%. And then expected yards per route run, which looks at air yards and targets per route run. Ridley also trails there, 1.73 to 1.83. But Kirk's routes also look more fragile. With 69% of his routes coming in the slot, he could see less playing time than Ridley if Zay Jones returns to action. But clearly, the reactions to Kirk's week one performance, guilty, were directionally inaccurate. But I wouldn't lose faith in Ridley. He's locked into two wide receiver sets, leads the team in first read target rate, and has a quarterback who is trending toward high-end play. The week one reactions on Ridley also look silly, but he's a solid wide receiver too. Evan Ingram is coming off a big week in the underlying numbers with all eight of his targets coming on first reads. With very few appealing options at the position, Evan Ingram is a very solid tight end start. Then I have a chart here showing that Evan Ingram has a 21% target share and 1.66 yards per route run, both of which are pretty good for a tight end. If they can get away with it, the Jaguars are likely to maintain some balance this week, which is good news for Travis Etienne. The Bills are very strong against the pass, but rank just 20th in EPL out per rush and 25th in rushing success rate. And Etienne is coming off a season-high 84% snap share against the Falcons. He's handled 72% of attempts for the Jaguars this year, and will carry the load again this week. Then I have Travis Etienne's game log, showing an 84% snap share last week, 71% share 
of team attempts. He's at 77% and 62% for the season. Etienne is also running a lot of routes, ranking running back 7 with 65% route participation. Theoretically, that should keep him involved even if the Jaguars play from behind this week. But then again, Etienne is running mostly empty routes with a targets per route run of just 14%. This is creating a very inefficient receiving role. Etienne ranks RB28 with a 0.89 yards per route run. The next chart is Travis Etienne's uh, workload and efficiency. He has not been efficient as a, as a rusher or receiver. He ranks RB35 in rush yards over expected per game, RB22 in success rate, and RB28 in yards per route run. So although ETN has a firm grip on lead back duties in Jacksonville, it isn't creating a ton of fantasy value. He ranks just RB19 in expected points per game. ETN profiles as an RB2 in a matchup that the Jaguars will try to keep him involved in, but one where they ultimately might have to abandon the run. Moving to the Bills, who have an implied team total of 27. Josh Allen is coming off an incredible game. Against the Dolphins, he posted 25.9 expected points added. He was worth nearly four touchdowns to the Bills. Allen was also incredibly consistent as well with a ridiculous 69% success rate. If not for the existence of Brock Purdy, Allen would be a chart breaker. Then I've got the EPA chart showing that Josh Allen is way ahead of all the other quarterbacks last week, except for Brock Purdy, who's like further away from Allen than Allen is from the pack, uh, as we'll get to an incredible performance from Purdy. But don't let that take away from the fact that Allen was also amazing last week. Allen now ranks second to Purdy in both EPA per game and success rate. He's currently forming a clear top tier with Purdy and Tua Tungabailoa. Then I've got the EPA per game chart from the season. Those three are like very clearly a top tier. There's really no other quarterbacks that are even in contention for the tier one right now. Allen now gets a Jaguars defense that ranks 10th in EPA allowed per dropback and 12th in dropback success rate. They aren't pushovers. At the same time, the Jaguars defense isn't particularly scary and could even be a plus matchup for Allen. The Jaguars don't have a strong pass rush, ranking 23rd in pass rush win rate. Jacksonville has attempted to juice its pressure rates with a moderate dose of blitzing, but that approach is very likely to backfire if they attempt it here. The Bills rank first in EPA per dropback against the Blitz. Then I've got the passing matchup chart. The Bills are not getting blitzed. They rank 28th in blitz rate, and they've been absolutely deadly against the Blitz, so it makes sense why teams aren't bringing extra defenders. Uh, the Jaguars... Don't blitz a ton, but it's definitely a part of their game, and they're not going to be able to do it and do it a lot here. Uh, if they do, it could really backfire, and that hurts because they aren't getting to the passer generally. The issue is that Allen is also deadly from a clean pocket. The Jaguars are strong in coverage, ranking 7th in PFF's coverage grades, but no NFL secondary will fare well if Allen has time to pick them apart. The bigger issue for Buffalo pass catchers is that the Jaguars' offense isn't a lock to push the Bills. The Bills have technically been pass first this year, passing 3% more than expected. But the expected rate matters for a team with a high-end defense. The Bills have had an expected pass rate over 60% just once this season. Then I've got a chart showing the Bills' expected pass rate versus their actual pass rate by week. They were at 66% 
expected pass rate in week one, and they played aggressively, passing 73% of the time. But since then, they've had expected pass rates of 53%, 58%, and 51%, and they haven't passed over 60% in any of those three weeks. With a league-leading 12% pass rate ever expected on first down, it's very clear that the Bills will lean on Allen if this game shoots out. But if it doesn't, they aren't going to handle things like the Chiefs might by passing aggressively in a positive game script, which creates the potential for limited passing volume. Fortunately, the Bills' target tree is very condensed. Then I've got a chart here that shows yards per route run and Whopper, which is a measure of target share and air yard share, combines combines those two metrics. Um, And this is for all wide receivers, this particular version of the chart. I've got this chart, uh, some different versions of it, some showing all players, some showing just the the position I'm highlighting. But this one shows all wide receivers. uh, And Stefan Diggs pops like up near the very best wide receivers in the league. He's right near Justin Jefferson. Uh, He's right near Keenan Allen. He's right near Puka Nakua. A little bit below A.J. Brown and Whopper, but similar yards per route run. Stefan Diggs looking like the clear number one we expect. And then Gabe Davis is kind of in the mix with like good, not great secondary options. Stefan Diggs profiles as a truly elite wide receiver with a 30% target share, 39% air yard share, and an elite 0.72 Whopper. He is accounting for a huge portion of the Bills passing offense, and is bringing elite efficiency to the table with a 2.83 yards per route run. Meanwhile, Gabe Davis continues to do Gabe Davis things. His 0.43 whopper and 1.64 yards per route run are both middling, but Davis remains the clear deep threat in the Bills offense with an ultra-deep 17.4 ADOT and a 32% air yard share. Then I have a chart showing Stefan Diggs compared with Gabe Davis, and yeah, the thing that really jumps out is that ADOT for Gabe Davis and the air yard share. These guys like are who we thought they were. Gabe Davis, the the deep threat, not going to get a ton of targets, but when he does get targeted, he has a good chance to hit big. Stefan Diggs, the true number one. Davis is always just a splash play bet, but the thesis behind that bet remains firmly intact. Although Dalton Kincaid's production has been disappointing, the rookie had a quietly encouraging week four in the underlying numbers. Kincaid set a new career high with 79% round participation, and his increased usage came in a game where the Bills set a season low in 12 personnel sets. Then I have a chart here from Fantasy Life that shows 12 personnel by week uh, for the Bills. This is free, by the way. You can check this out over there. Uh, Pretty cool view here that I haven't seen elsewhere. And they've got 25% 12 personnel last week for the Bills. They were at 63% in week one, 38% in week two, 34% in week three, and then down to 25% last week. So much less two tight end set usage, and yet a lot of uh, routes for Dalton Kincaid. The Bills are still playing a lot of two tight end sets and will continue to do so this season. But entering the season, I was extremely skeptical that Kincaid would be able to live on two tight end sets alone. His more realistic path to relevance look to be passing Dawson Knox on the depth chart. Week 1 indicated that there will be weeks where both tight ends are used extensively in the passing game. But over the last three weeks, the Bills have not had enough tight end routes to support both players. And so it's extremely bullish to see Kincaid post high-end route participation in the same game that Dawson Knox 
fell to a very weak 48%. Then I have Dawson Knox's game log. You can see that his route participation has dropped from 78% in week one to 48% last week. He was at 62% in week two and 69% in week three. Those were the two weeks where he and Kincaid were kind of cannibalizing each other. Last week showed that maybe Kincaid maybe has pulled ahead. Kincaid's route participation could very well drop back into the 65% range this week, but it's pretty clear that he's in the process of becoming the Bills' tight end one. This week, he's a bet on a touchdown. Knox should be left on benches. Week four was a disappointing result for James Cook. The Bills' backfield doesn't tend to be especially valuable. Josh Allen doesn't pass to running backs all that often and has historically stolen goal line touchdowns. But with the Bills' defense looking excellent this season, they should be in plenty of positive game script as opposing offenses struggle to keep up with them. This season, there could be real value in the Buffalo backfield if one running back can take control. But with the Bills salting away a lead against the Dolphins, Cook saw just 41% of snaps and 44% of team attempts. He's now seen less than half of the Bills' attempts this season. Then I have the season stats for James Cook, Damian Harris, and Latavius Murray. Uh, highlighting the rushing attempts here, Cook at 47%, Harris at 16%, and Latavius Murray at 14%. So two guys are kind of siphoning off carries from Cook. Cook's role is still valuable. It's just frustratingly much less valuable than it could be. But Cook did see two inside the five carries against the Dolphins, which is very nice to see given that he's operating as a part-time back. We also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Cook has been very impressive this season. The next chart here is on Cook, and it shows that he has been very impressive as a rusher and receiver. He's RB6 in yards per route run at 1.51, which is a really nice mark. He's RB6 in rush yards over expected per game, so he's showing explosiveness, and he also has a really good success rate of 48%. For the second straight week, Cook posted a very impressive success rate in NFL Next Gen's rushing metric. He's up to running back eight on the season, pairing high-end explosiveness with impressive consistency, and now faces a Jaguars run defense that looks overrated. Jacksonville has held up extremely well so far, ranking fourth in EPA allowed per rush and third in rushing success rate, but ranks just 24th in PFF's run grades and 30th in ESPN's run stop win rate. I'm not buying them as an elite run defense. Then I have the rushing matchup here purely from the perspective of EPA per rush and rushing success rate. So the results, the Jaguars look awesome, but they're 24th in run grade and 30th in run stop win rate. So that part of the chart really pops. They're kind of a mismatch here between what we might expect them to be going forward and what they have been so far. So I think the Jaguars run defense definitely looks overrated. The Bills, actually somewhat similar. They've been successful on the ground but they don't rate particularly well uh, in run block rate or in run block win rate, they still might be better than the Jaguars in those areas. If the Bills were willing to lean on Cook, he would look like an elite RB1. As is, he's a high-end RB2. The next game is the Giants at Dolphins, which kicks off the 1 p.m. window. Giants implied team total, 18.75. The Giants just signed Daniel Jones to a four-year, $160 million deal with $92 million guaranteed. And while it's hard to know exactly how much they were expecting from Jones, it had to be better than this. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here. Jones at the very bottom of the chart. His success rate 
uh, not horrendous, but the efficiency has been quite bad. Jones ranks quarterback 28 in success rate, dead last in EPA per game, and has Brian Dayball throwing things. Then I've got the video here he probably saw on Twitter of Dayball looking at a play with Jones and then throwing the tablet. Entering week four, it was easy enough to dismiss Jones's struggles as matchup related. He was terrible against the Cowboys and 49ers, but those are very good defenses. His strong showing against the Cardinals is a better reflection of who he really is. Right? Apparently not. The next chart is the EPA per game chart from last week. Jones was at the very bottom of this chart. Uh, There were several backups playing last week, and Jones was still the least efficient quarterback against the Seahawks. Against a very beatable Seahawks pass defense, Jones was, crazy but true, less efficient than Dorian Thompson-Robinson and much worse than Aiden O'Connell. This is how the matchup looked entering the game, and yet Jones was less efficient than last-minute fill-ins. I know I've got the matchup chart that I showed last week. The Seahawks' pass defense was 27th in EPA allowed per dropback, 31st in dropback success rate, 25th in explosive pass percentage allowed, and 30th in coverage grade. They were very exploitable, yet Jones still collapsed against them. With Jones playing so poorly, I'm a little shocked that the Giants haven't attempted to go run heavy. Their minus 2% pass rate of expected against the Seahawks set a season low, but with an aggressive pass rate on first down, it was a fairly balanced game plan. Then I have the Giants pass rate over expected by week. They've been generally pretty balanced overall. The only week they were pass heavy was in week three with a 9% pass rate of expected. They've been at 0%, 1%, and minus 2% in the other three weeks. But uh, in three of four weeks, they've been aggressive on first down with pass rates over expected in week two of 8%, then 21% in week three, then 12% last week. Uh, Generally, I think this is a good thing, but it's also interesting in this case that the Giants are not abandoning the pass with Jones playing very poorly. The Giants' ongoing commitment to the pass offers some hope this week in a matchup where they're almost certain to be trailing as 11-point underdogs. If they had confidence that they could play from ahead, we could see the Giants attack a weak Dolphins run defense. But Dayball is sharp enough to know the score here. Daniel Jones will be dropping back plenty against a Dolphins defense that isn't that strong, but could still give him trouble. Now I've got the matchup chart here between the Giants and the Dolphins uh, for both the passing and rushing game. The Giants' pass defense really pops in a bad way. They just aren't doing anything well across the board. They're getting blitzed at a high rate and not performing well against it. They aren't holding up well to traditional pressure. Uh, They aren't producing anything good. The Dolphins' um, pass defense, they're only 31st in dropback success rate. They're only 21st in EPL out per dropback, but they look good in most of the other metrics here. They're decent at getting to the passer. Uh, They're blitzing a fair amount, and they're they're performing well when blitzing. They aren't letting up explosive plays. Uh, The Dolphins' run defense looks pretty exploitable. They're 30th in EPL out per rush and 30th in rushing success rate but remains to be seen if the Giants will really be able to attack that given the game script we're likely to see. The big issue for Jones is that the Dolphins are getting to opposing passers. They rank 10th in pass rush win rate and 13th in quick pressure rate. And the Giants are just 22nd in pass block win rate 
and dead last in quick pressure rate. Jones should face some pressure, which he has handled very poorly so far this season. The Dolphins rank 13th in blitz rate, and teams are bringing the heat when facing Jones. That makes sense, given that the Giants have been dreadful against extra rushers, ranking 29th in EPA per dropback. The Dolphins are beatable if you can consistently find success in the passing game. Josh Allen just posted a 69% success rate against them, which led to a 48-point shellacking. But Jones has hit a 60-plus percent success rate just once under Brian Dayball, and it was against the Jeff Saturday Colts. If anything, this looks like a get-right spot for the Dolphins' defense. If any Giants pass catcher truly surprises this week, my money would be on Wandale Robinson. Robinson was up to 64% route participation against the Seahawks, passing Paris Campbell, who was at just 34%. Additional playing time is big for Robinson, because the Giants have been featuring him with a 22% first read target rate and a 27% targets per route run. Then I've got Wandale Robinson's chart here, highlighting his uh, first read target rate and targets per route run. Also being targeted very shallowly, though, with a 3.28 dot. He has an expected yards per route run of 1.78, which is good, not great, uh, showing that really the appeal here is the high target rate. PPR leagues is is where he's going to pop. Even better, Robinson looks like a particularly good fit for this matchup. We can count on the Dolphins to put up points, which means we can correspondingly count on passing volume from the Giants. We also know that underneath throws will be available against this defense, and with a 3.2 ADOT, Robinson thrives on underneath throws. With the potential for another playing time bump, Robinson looks like an intriguing DFS punt. But Darren Waller is the better bet in season-long leagues. Waller's 17% targets per route run has been disappointing, but the tight end has a fairly shallow 8.2 ADOT and could also be part of the Giants' plan to consistently move the ball through the air. He's a pure volume play, but that goes a long way at the tight end position. Then I have his chart showing 17% targets per outrun, 8.2 ADOT. His air yard share of 23% is pretty good, although that probably says more about the Giants' passing offense than about Waller in particular, uh, given that he only has an expected yards per outrun of 1.33. So his per out volume hasn't really been special. In the backfield, we could see Saquon Barkley return to action. The franchise running back logged limited practices on Wednesday and Thursday, but Barkley's exact level of health will be crucial for his fantasy value. Barkley has not been explosive this season. Instead, he's been solidly consistent and has handled big workloads. His appeal is as a volume play. If he can't get in a full practice on Friday, he looks like a boom-bust bet. Then I've got Barkley's profile here, and yeah, he has been consistent with a 45% success rate, but he's RB21 in rush yards over expected per game. He's RB34 in yards per outrun with 0.69 yards per outrun. He's probably not going to get any more efficient coming back from the high ankle sprain. So we really need him out there uh, a lot uh, if if we're going to have any faith that he's going to deliver this week. Moving to the Dolphins, who have an implied team total of 29.75. Tua Tonga-Vailoa is coming off a disappointing week against the Bills, but even in a down game, Tua was able to deliver a success rate above the 50th percentile. Then I have Tua's percentiles by week. 
He was absolutely amazing to start the season. Last week, he fell off to 30th percentile in EPA per play. But yeah, still 53rd percentile in success rate, 75th percentile in accuracy. So, you know, for a bad week, it wasn't that bad. And Tua is moving from the impressive Bills to a vulnerable Giants defense. If the Dolphins' offensive line can hold up, Tonga Bailoa will rack up big plays. Then the matchup chart here shows the Dolphins is a, is a big mismatch over the Giants' defense. The Giants have a good pass rush, but they look very weak in coverage. Um, the Giants' run defense also looks pretty weak compared to the Dolphins' rushing offense. The Giants rank 6th in pass rush win rate and 4th in quick pressure rate, so they're getting to opposing quarterbacks. That's a potential issue for a Dolphins line that will be without Teron Armstead, knee, and rank 16th in pass block win rate. The funny thing about the Giants is that they probably don't need to blitz, but they do anyway. That's Wink Martindale's thing. Per Rivka Board, the Giants led the NFL in blitz rate in 2022, and Martindale twice led the NFL in blitz rate in four seasons with the Ravens, finishing third and sixth in his other two seasons. Tua has been deadly against the blitz this season, but that does not guarantee that Martindale will chill. We should see Tua take some sacks this week, but he's likely to more than make up for that with big plays downfield. On plays where the Dolphins' offensive line holds up, the number one offense from a clean pocket will be going against a secondary that ranks 29th in PFF's coverage grades and is allowing 15-plus yard passes at the 8th highest rate. Seems like a pretty great setup for Tyreek Hill, who will be looking to reclaim his yards per route run title from Brandon Ayuk. Then I've got the yards per route run and whopper chart here showing that Tyreek Hill would be kind of at the, the very far end of the chart if not for Brandon Ayuk being insanely efficient this season as well. Uh, he is seeing a huge share of the Dolphins offense, Tyreek Hill, and he has a yards per out run just under 4.0. This matchup looks somewhat similar to Miami's Week 3 matchup against the Broncos. I have no doubt that Hill will turn in a strong game, but he could be blocked from a massive game due to the Giants' expected inability to keep pace. But Hill's profile is so strong that he could easily crush in a couple of quarters. Then I have a comparison between Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. 27% first read target rate for Hill compared to 13% for Waddell. 3.92 yards per route run compared to 2.33 for Waddell. Jalen Waddell looks more boom bust against a defense that is seeding big plays. Waddell almost has to be in lineups this week, but with a weak 13% first read target rate and 18% targets per route run, Waddle's floor is lower than ideal. His ceiling is too high to pass on, though. Speaking of ceilings, Devon Achan saw a lot of work again. He's feasted on non-competitive snaps against the Broncos and Bills, so it's hard to know what his true role looks like, but it's hard not to take notice of his usage last week. The rookie posted a 66% snap share with 47% of team carries, 68% route participation, and a 13% target share. Then I have A-Chan's game log here. He has seen a lot more work over the last two weeks than in week two. And his work last week, if you didn't know anything else, you'd say that's a lead running back. Per PFF, A-Chan's week four workload was worth 14.2 expected PPR points, while Raheem Mostert's was worth 9.2. After A-Chan's terrific showing against Denver, Miami used a trailing script against Buffalo to get a longer look at him. And I think collectively, we get it. 
the rookie has been as electric as it gets. Then I've got A-Chan's profile here. He's literally RB1 in all of the rushing efficiency metrics that I reference. He has a 1.26 yards per route run, which is pretty solid. That ranks RB16. 21% uh, targets per route run, which is pretty good. That ranks RB15. You may hear talk of negative regression this week. A-Chan is RB1 in like every rushing metric. So yeah, that's fair. He can't run even close to this hot for long. But regression is not a force that universally levels players to league average. When regression comes for A-Chan, it will return him to a productivity level commensurate with his talent. And it is abundantly clear that A-Chan is extremely talented. The rookie now faces a Giants defense that ranks 24th in EPA allowed per rush and is on a Dolphins offense that could be playing from way ahead again this week. A-Chan is risky. If this game remains competitive, his role could be much smaller than ideal. But that is a risk worth taking in this matchup because A-Chan can take this matchup over. Raheem Mostert has gone from the toast of the middle to late rounds to a veteran impediment in an A-Chain-esque blink of an eye. But Mostert also looks like a solid start this week, with the Dolphins likely to be salting this game away. Then I have Mostert's chart here, and he's been really good across the board. He's RB9 in rush yards over expected per game, RB17 in success rate, he's RB9 in yards per route run. Uh, so if it wasn't for A-Chan, we would be very excited about Mostert, and he's a solid play this week. The next game is the Texans at Falcons. Texans implied team total, 19.75. There are a couple of ways we can predict improvements in play. One is to look for positive regression. For example, let's look at the number one pick in the NFL draft. Bryce Young's EPA is much lower than you'd expect based on his success rate, and his play should be somewhat better going forward. Then I have a chart here showing Bryce Young in a part of the chart where you would expect him to be slightly better than he has been, even though you wouldn't expect him to be great. But let's look at the number two pick in the NFL draft. With C.J. Stroud, we're not looking at regression. We're looking at improvement. Then I've got a chart here showing C.J. Stroud's percentiles by week. Big jump from week one to two, another big jump from week two to three, and then he held steady at a very strong level of play in week four. After struggling in week one, Stroud has made huge improvements since. The NFL is a noisy sport. A trend is often just a random grouping of good or bad games. But I'm willing to take the leap on young players. That's how we find stars before our opponents. After Stroud posted very strong efficiency against the Jaguars, I mostly bought in. Entering last week, my two big questions were if Stroud would be ready for a difficult Steelers defense, and if the Texans would be willing to lean on their young passer. Stroud was ready. Then I've got the EPA chart from last week. Of the non-Josh Allen and Brock Purdy quarterbacks last week, Stroud had arguably the best mix of efficiency and consistency last week. Against the Steelers, Stroud finished quarterback 7 in EPA and quarterback 3 in success rate. Stroud is now up to quarterback 12 in EPA per game and quarterback 14 in success rate. Stroud is now up to quarterback 12 in EPA per game and quarterback 14 in success rate. It won't be a completely smooth, positive trajectory, but Stroud looks to be in the unexpected and incredibly impressive position to solidify himself as a top 12 NFL quarterback in his rookie season. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here. Stroud kind of in the middle grouping of quarterbacks, but performing very efficiently. Hasn't been outstanding, but I mean... For a rookie, he has been. 
But the Texans may not be entirely ready to lean on their young quarterback. They posted a minus 5% pass rate of expected against the Steelers, with a very conservative minus 12% pass rate of expected on first down. When in neutral or positive script, the Texans have been content to play things fairly conservatively. Then I have the Texans' expected pass rate and pass rate by week. They had high expected pass rates in weeks one and two. They kind of played at the pass rate in week one with a 75% pass rate when they had a 74% expected pass rate. But they're pretty conservative in week two. Uh, they had a pass rate over expected of minus eight there. Then they were, over the last two weeks, also somewhat conservative in more conservative game environments. Last week, they only had a 47% pass rate. Last week, Stroud faced an impressive Steelers pass rush. But this week, he gets a Falcons defense that has been quite poor at getting to the passer, ranking just 27th in quick pressure rate. The Falcons have been solid in coverage, but Stroud has been deadly from a clean pocket, ranking third in EPA per clean pocket dropback. The next chart here shows the Texans are kind of a middling blocking team, but really strong from a clean pocket, producing well overall in terms of passing offense. The Falcons defense really jumps out as not having much of a pass rush, also haven't been successful when blitzing. The Falcons offense is never a good bet to push an opposing passing game, so volume is likely to be somewhat limited this week. But the Texans coaches should feel confident that Stroud can have success dropping back against this defense. The Texans wide receivers are dead set on throwing us off the scent. Nico Collins appeared primed for a breakout game in week three, but Tank Dell hit instead. Then with Dell looking like a slight favorite over Collins in the passing game, Collins exploded against the Steelers with a seven for 168 yard, two touchdown receiving line on nine targets. Collins now looks like a borderline elite receiver with Dell falling back to the pack. Then I've got the yards per route run and Whopper chart. Nico Collins is over in terms of yards per route run with guys like Justin Jefferson and Mike Evans. He is not getting as big of a share of the offense, so a little harder to count on that continuing. But yeah, big lead now over Tank Dell in efficiency and a solid lead in terms of the share of the offense as well. But this remains a somewhat volatile situation. The zoomed out view is that Collins and Dell are very likely to lead this passing game and likely in that order. But week to week, it'll be tough to nail. Neither Collins, 73%, nor Dell, 71%, are running routes at an elite level. Neither Collins, 19%, nor Dell, 17%, are seeing first read targets at an elite level. And with ADOTs of 12.7 and 12.0, both are operating fairly deep downfield. Then I've got a comparison chart here showing the numbers that I just referenced. Both aren't full-time players, really, in terms of route participation. Both aren't seeing elite first-read target rates, so maybe targets bounce around a little bit week to week. And then both are downfield players, so you know their per-target profile is going to be a little bit volatile as well. So we have a situation where the top two options in the passing game are both borderline full-time players with good not great offensive roles and boom bust per target profiles. It's going to lead to more fun games for both in the future. But we're also likely to get burned anytime we become overconfident in how targets will be distributed in a given week. There's also the issue of Robert Woods' continued role in the offense. Woods isn't much of a fantasy option, but his 21% target share is meaningful, and it makes Collins and Dell harder to rely on. Then I've got Robert Woods' profile, 21% target share, 83% route participation. So he's out there a lot. 
He's drawing targets at a 21% rate per route, which is pretty solid. Like Woods is doing what they want him to do in this offense. Fortunately, Dalton Schultz has fallen out of the rotation. The tight end is coming off 42% route participation and has very poor per route target numbers. Dalton Schultz's profile here highlights uh, an 11% first read target per route rate, which is very uninspiring. And then the 13% targets per route run is quite weak. Collins and Dell don't have much of a floor, but both are strong upside flex plays as bets that Stroud has time to attack downfield. Damian Pierce should see plenty of work this week in a game plan that is unlikely to be overly aggressive. Pierce is coming off a season-high 24 attempts and has had a valuable workload this season. He ranks RB16 with 14.3 expected points per game. But Pierce has run poorly this year. The next chart is Pierce's profile, uh, 22nd percentile in rush yards of respected per game, 2nd percentile in breakaway yards per game. He's not had a breakaway rush yet. At this point, that's starting to get concerning. He's uh, 43rd percentile in elusive rating, nothing special there, and that had been kind of his calling card previously. So yeah, just a very unimpressive uh, start for Pierce, especially as a rusher. He's better as a receiver with 1.15 yards per hour run. Rushing inefficiency is a major problem for Pierce because he isn't seeing much work as a receiver. His 8% target share ranks just RB29. For Pierce to bounce back, he'll need to produce more efficiently on the ground. Pierce is going against a Falcons defense that ranks first in EPA allowed per rush, although that's partly been schedule-driven. Atlanta faced Miles Sanders, A.J. Dillon, and Jameer Gibbs to start the season, but even Travis Etienne struggled badly against them last week, producing 19 fewer yards than expected. This isn't an ideal matchup for a Pierce resurgence. Then I have the rushing matchup chart. This looks like a mismatch on paper. The one thing is that in terms of the offensive and defensive line, it looks pretty even. The Texans are 22nd in run block win rate, and the Falcons are 23rd in run stop win rate. So the Falcons defense definitely a little overrated. Um, and maybe we get some positive regression here for Pierce. But again, not the best week to bet on that. As a two-down runner in a tough matchup, Pierce profiles primarily as a bet on a touchdown. But he should have enough volume to return value as a solid RB2. Moving to the Falcons, who have an implied team total of 21.75. Desmond Ritter was rough against the Jaguars, finishing quarterback 31 in EPA and quarterback 22 in success rate. But what else is new? For the season, Ritter ranks quarterback 32 in EPA per play and quarterback 26 in success rate. He's offered very little hope of efficient play going forward. Then I have his EPA per game chart here. On the chart, he does look like potentially a positive regression candidate. Um, although it's important to ask yourself, what is he regressing to? Ritter's success rate hasn't been terrible this season, though. And while, hey, he could start playing like Gardner Minshew isn't an enticing sell if you're a Falcons fan, it's a somewhat realistic hope and one that would be huge for the Falcons receivers. But even with better play from Ritter, Falcons pass catchers are in a bad way. Like last year, Arthur Smith is refusing to pass. The next chart here shows expected pass rate versus pass rate uh, for all teams. And like they were last year, the Falcons are in the top right, which means they have a high expected pass rate on average, but a low actual pass rate. This is a part of the chart that I've titled Refusing to Pass. The Falcons look like the most stubbornly run-heavy team this year, which was the case last year as well. 
The chart above shows average expected pass rate and average pass rate, and averages sometimes hide things. For example, a single outlier performance might be enough to make the Falcons look like a consistently stubborn team. But in this case, the average isn't hiding anything at all. Week in, week out, and regardless of game script, the Falcons pass less than expected. The next chart shows the Falcons' expected pass rate and actual pass rate, and every single week they are passing less than expected, sometimes dramatically so, but we've also seen a variety of game scripts. They, in week three, they had a 77% expected pass rate. In week two, they were at 63%. In week uh, one, they were at 62%, still managed to pass less than 50% of the time. So it's not like they're one of these teams that is really run heavy because they're always in you know really back and forth scripts. Um, they, it doesn't matter what the script is. They, they run the ball a lot. With that in mind, it's very difficult to see the Falcons taking to the air this week. The Texans rank 11th in EPA allowed per dropback and are well-suited to disrupt the Falcons' passing attack such as it is. Ritter has been blitzed heavily this year, and he's actually handled that fairly well. His big issue has been handling quick pressure, playing behind a Falcons offensive line that ranks 30th in pass block win rate. Then I have the matchup chart here. The Falcons offense is not doing anything well. They're holding up well to the blitz is really the best thing you could say, but the Texans don't really blitz, so that's not going to help a ton. The Texans are kind of shockingly impressive in pass block win rate. They're second, they're sixth in quick pressure rate, so Ritter's going to face some pressure this week. The Texans rank second in pass rush win rate and sixth in quick pressure rate, and they're getting to the passer without blitzing. It's a potentially disastrous matchup for Ritter, who has struggled with pressure since his days at Cincinnati. So even by their standards, the Falcons will likely be run heavy this week. Because while the Texans are good against the pass, they're much weaker against the run, ranking just 25th in EPA allowed per rush and 28th in run stop win rate. Arthur Smith needs a minute alone with this matchup chart. Then I have the rushing matchup. The Falcons really strong across the board. The Texans really weak across the board. This is not going to go unnoticed by the Falcons. Bijan Robinson is the only Falcon who is even remotely exciting this week but the rookie is genuinely exciting. Robinson's share of team carries has increased in every game this year, culminating in a career-high 67% in Week 4. Then I've got his game log, 38%, 48%, 56%, and 67% of team attempts by week. He is ramping up. Robinson also posted a 17% target share, second only to Alvin Kamara. And despite being tied to a deeply disappointing passing game, Robinson has been an extremely efficient rusher and a very respectable receiver. Then I have Bijan Robinson's chart here. He's been amazing. RB2 in rush yards ever expected per game, RB5 in success rate, 50% success rate is an elite mark. He's RB14 in yards per route run, but 1.28, very solid there. He's been really good. The Falcons are a good bet to melt down on offense this week, and yet Robinson profiles as a high-end RB1. He's good. But man, the passing game. It's one thing to have an inefficient, low-volume passing game. But to have one that's also spread out, that's just gross. Then I've got the yards per route run chart. It's rough. Jonu Smith is the most efficient receiver here. Uh, then you've got Kyle Pitts, Drake London, and Mac Hollins kind of all bunched together in a part of the chart where you know, you've got your like Brandon Cooks and your Terrace Marshalls and Zay Jones. It's not a, a spot of the chart where you're seeing like clear number one options. As bad as things have been for Kyle Pitts, 
Drake London is two touchdowns away from being in the exact same situation. Sure, it's more frustrating to see Jono Smith being targeted if you have Pitts than if you have London, but it's still terrible for both receivers. And Smith's involvement isn't having a huge impact on Pitts' routes. Pitts logged 83% route participation against the Jaguars and is up to 89% on the season. The Falcons don't drop back much, but he's out there when they do. The issue is that he's a deep threat who isn't fully healthy in a Desmond Ritter offense. That is leading to a low target rate and a poor yards per target. Then I have a comparison of Drake London and Kyle Pitts. Yards per target here of uh, 5.7 for Drake London and 6.1 for Kyle Pitts. In addition to all the route volume concerns we have here, that's just a killer. But I continue to think that London's fantasy outlook is even more dire than Pitts. To be clear, both players are in hell. But some circles of hell come with tight end eligibility, at least. All right, that'll do it for this free preview. Again, if you want to listen to the rest, head on over to legendaryupside.com and hope to see you in the Discord over there. Hope to see you in the comments, which are reserved for members as well. If not, hope to see you back here at least for another free preview of the Week 6 walkthrough.